Welcome to the Revolution Podcast, a joint project of the Education Trust and New Teacher Center. Here we engage leaders in conversations around how we navigate these uncharted times in our schools in a way that truly revolutionizes the learning opportunities our students experience daily. In today's conversation, we hear from Dr. Lillian Lowry, Vice President of Student and Teacher Assessment at Educational Testing Service. Listen in as she shares strategies for leveraging data to ensure that systems leaders can support schools and teachers in remaining student-centered. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the Revolution Podcast. I'm Kristen Wendell with the New Teacher Center, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Lillian Lowry, Vice President of Student and Teacher Assessment at ETS, Educational Testing Service. Dr. Lowry, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. Of course. So let's begin. Can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and your work at ETS? I am, as noted, the Vice President of Student and Teacher Assessment at ETS. I have been with the organization for about two years. I came through a traditional public education background, beginning with a classroom teacher position through principal district superintendent state commissioner. As you just shared, your career has spanned from classroom to the district office to the state house and now the nonprofit education policy arena. Can you share one of your most formative experiences as a district or state education leader and how that informs how you conceptualize what's needed most for students today? So I was fortunate enough and I to be the state secretary of ed for Delaware. The state of Delaware, along with Tennessee, were the first two states to be awarded the race of the top funds. That was revolutionary for us to have the funding to actually look at more rigorous standards and assessments to be really focused on looking at school models that best serve differentiated communities and providing teachers and leaders with the kind of professional development and support needed to make sure that we were focused on equity, equality, and closing gaps in not just academics, but in opportunity and access was very formative. Was there something specific you learned about what teachers need in their professional learning to bring about equity in their classrooms? One of the things that we did that was quoted to me from many teachers as probably the best professional development that they had ever had was to unpack the standards together. And what we realized and teachers realized that we've had standards for years and no one had really unpacked the standards with them. And because the then standards where the common core standards were conceptual, there was a pyramid of work from foundational kindergarten all the way through high school graduation where teachers were looking at the same levels of concept and standards and just building on that. And that was really instrumental for getting all teachers buy-in because all of our teachers were going to be responsible for the English language arts and math skills. But it also was a great learning experience for what is expected of our students, what they must know and be able to do by all teachers. So we at least put equity in understanding the standards and then the curriculum that evolved from the standards and the assessments we would be using to determine whether our students were learning or not. I appreciate you sharing how you all listen to the teachers in terms of what the professional learning was that worked for them. And it's exciting to hear about that work across multiple subjects, multiple teachers and that collegial, bringing them together to really develop their skills and service of students. 
How does your work at ETS influence the access to quality and equitable education for our most underserved students? One of the ways that we find ourselves most supportive of the clients that we have, uh, the teachers and leaders in the states that we serve, is that all the work that we do is evidence-based. We have an amazing research and development department. And so we look at the state's standards. We review the state's curricula. And we make sure that any assessment that we build, any tool or product that we build, is not only aligned to the state's standards and curricula, but also have research data behind it to prove that what we are assessing will give our clients what they need to make good instructional decisions about students and teaching. I appreciate that focus on research and and the data. Sometimes I feel like our teachers and our leaders are overwhelmed with data. What the data says, is the data valid? And often, if you don't have that proof that, yes, the data I'm looking at is valid, then you disconnect from it. And it becomes hard as a teacher to use that data if you don't trust where it's coming from. Absolutely. So our collective NTC Education Trust campaign has been focused on how do we revolutionize education and what does it mean to revolutionize education? What type of revolution would you like to see in our schools? So I think the revolution for me is pretty practically what we know that we must do in order to include our historically underserved students in the success that many of our students already realize. Number one, I believe that increasing teacher diversity will help us make progress on one of the most intractable issues of our time, and that's the opportunity gap that separates students by race, by ethnicity, and by income. For years, the opportunity gap has barely budged which also, of course, impacts the student achievement gap. But decades of research show that when we add more teachers of color and more men to America's classrooms, those teachers have profound and lasting impacts on their students. In addition to the teacher in the room, which is the major resource, we know firsthand that students must have access to rigorous coursework. It may not sound revolutionary, but it is because one would be absolutely dismayed at how many of our students in their high schools don't have algebra two, don't have geometry, don't have science courses as basic as biology. All students have to be exposed to rigorous coursework, no exceptions. And I worked in a state where I found out in Baltimore City when We had a major incident with a man being killed, Freddie Gray. Working with the high school there with both our federal and state legislators, that's how I found out about the curriculum that was not. And here I am, the state superintendent of schools in one of the wealthiest states in the country with one of the highest rankings in the country about student performance. And blocks away from my office was a high school that did not offer students, even if they wanted to, access to rigorous coursework. So we started to emphasize the reliance on making sure that our teachers and leaders were appropriately trained and had what they needed to differentiate instruction for those students who had been left behind in schools like that so that they were exposed to college and career ready expectations like every other child. One thing we've we've brought up on this podcast in previous episodes is how often we used to hear, we can't do one-to-one, we can't get laptops for students, we can't get Chromebooks. And then come middle of March, we have districts that are suddenly finding ways 
to make sure students have access to the laptops and the Chromebooks to work from home. And that hasn't happened everywhere, but we saw some energy behind closing that digital divide back in March. What do you think it will take to actually bring about access for all students? What are some things you think need to happen either on the local level or the state or the national level to bring about access to rigorous content for every child? In order to bring that kind of equity, we need to see, we must see more equity and not equality. And we've got to push equity and make sure that we are looking at things like weighted student formula to make sure that we level the playing field by putting the most resources, the best resources, according to students' needs. If teachers and leaders don't have the resources or if those resources aren't appropriated in ways that focus on equity and inclusion, we are not serving not only our students and communities well, but those educators who are responsible for their learning. Allocation of resources, I think, is a really critical issue. Resources in terms of finances, resources in terms of people, money. And I'm thinking about our systems leaders who are having to filter through making those decisions about securing laptops or do we go back to in-person learning? How can systems leaders center systemically underserved students when they're making decisions about how to prioritize those resources that have been allocated to them? To use a trite expression, if you will, what gets measured gets done. Performance measurement has given us the ability to know where students are and how they are performing in specific areas. And these data-based assessments allow educators and schools to identify areas of growth, areas where additional support is needed, to revise lesson plans and support student development. Systems leaders have to create the environment for that kind of thinking and action to happen. System leaders have to make sure that they know their schools, that they know the classrooms in those schools, they know the demographic student body that is being served in those schools and give some authority to teachers, the ability of our teachers to adapt to support the continuity of learning because they are the subject matter experts. They are the relationship builders with our students and parents. As a leader, I believe it is my responsibility to build a conducive environment for all the things that we know needs to happen in order for our students and teachers to be successful. That means we push for the appropriate policy and then follow the money. As I've already said, if one would follow where the dollars are being spent and how the dollars are being spent, one will realize the priorities of the district leaders. What would you say if a new systems leader called you? They are somebody who came on board this summer and they're hearing what you just shared and they're thinking, I have so many technical pieces to do. And they say, can you give me one strategy to get to know my schools better? What would you suggest they do? I would say, which was most important for me as a systems leader, as a state superintendent, I had close relationships with teachers. I worked very closely with our unions. We met once a month so that we could just sit down and unpack progress towards goals. But I was also in schools and getting to know the teachers who were in the schools. And I had an advisory group because I asked Arnie Duncan, who was Secretary of Education when I was the state superintendent, how he did exactly what you asked. What would a first person, first time in a position do to get arms around this big, big 
goal of closing gaps. And he said, talk to the people who do the work every day. And I use the teachers of the year as my advisory group. And I met with them once a month to just unpack what's going on, what are some of the challenges, what are the opportunities, what are some ways we can be innovative and creative. And it informed my work. We have to have the people who walk into those schools and touch students' lives every day, sitting at that table with us. What you've shared is really about empowering teachers and empowering teachers to be the voices for what's necessary for students. And what we're seeing in some places is that the response to the pandemic at the system level has eroded some of the trust between system level leaders and educators. What might a system level leader do to begin to rebuild that trust that they may have lost based on the way the past six months have gone? I will just simply say it is not optimal. I am a social being. I like being around people, but technology is working. And so what we can't use as an excuse is because we cannot physically sit across the table from each other, a reason that we are not still in communication with each other. And what I just described was lovely when I could be with them because I got so much energy from them in those rooms. But those things can still happen. And what we can't do is become so myopic in our view. At the end of the day, the teachers are the ones sitting in their offices, in their homes, interacting with these students remotely. Don't lose the fact, as a system leader, you are still responsible for making sure that teachers are helping you direct whatever plans we are making. Don't use excuses that if they were only here or I can't get them because they are here. It's just remotely, just like we're being remotely involved with our students. Thank you for that. I'm thinking about some of what you highlighted around we need to close the diversity gap for our teaching force to really revolutionize education. We need to close the digital divide, make sure that all students have access to rigorous instruction. What are some of the skills or knowledge or mindsets that leaders need to be able to really focus on those components of their work to bring about change at their systems? Know who those are that you serve, the communities, the student populations. As we all know, many of our students have gotten lost in this remote environment in which we're living. We don't know where they are. And many of those students were historically underserved students anyway. So that means that they were already behind when we closed schools and now being absent because of lack of access or lack of support and because life is happening for their families in real time, that makes it even more challenging. We have to know who they are. And if not, then invest some of the dollars that are available to find them. Do you have any suggestions based on your work with ETS or your previous experiences for how a teacher might gather data around student work right now, especially in a virtual setting, how they can see how students are doing? One of the things that we've done at ETS is really focus on our research labs to make sure that as we are navigating through this environment for teachers and students, that we're being responsive to the kinds of things that they need in order to glean data that will help teachers make good decisions about what they're doing. So with distance learning, we can also focus on tools that are available to actually give teachers information back in time. We can't think about remote learning and digital access only as a tool for teaching and learning when the teachers are with their students 
one-on-one during the classroom opportunity for instruction. We also need to focus on the opportunities that we have to introduce our students to other kinds of digital supports, other kinds of digital interactive websites that can help them be successful. We want to make sure at ETS that we are being a provider of some of those tools. And we are working to leverage, for example, the Amazon Alexa platform to improve and refine the English speaking skills of English language learners. Students with skills-based games are aimed at the pre-K through six ELL students. We are also looking at story writing, reading and writing tools where students can go on and pick a story line that they find interesting and then write a story about it, post it, and have the teachers go on to kind of gauge not only their writing skills, but also their English language arts skills and their ability to connect technical writing with fictional writing. School and system level leaders and educators are both responding to the pandemic and the changes to how we learn and where we learn, as well as the current racial reckoning that our country is undergoing. And there is a lot of talk about commitments to diversity or equity and what that means for schools. How can we translate those conversations to equity and to real action that goes beyond technical fixes? So one of the things that we have to make sure is that students see themselves from all walks of life. So let's look at the curricula that we use. Who is represented in anything that we put in front of our students that looks like those students that give them hope that I too can do whatever I want to because I see people who look like me being successful, having choices and great quality of life based on the kind of support and preparation they've given. For us to really value our students, and that goes back to the comment about making sure systems leaders truly understand the student population and the communities that they're serving. What we use to help students learn and master those skills is up to the individual schools and teachers. So make sure when we're talking about equity that students are exposed to people who look like them who are successful. More than anything else, I think what we can do is engage the community like we've never done before to make sure that parents and guardians understand what it is that we must accomplish with our students in order for them to be successful so that they can be mostly supportive. And that too, if we could bring the community in as volunteers or as team leaders, if we can employ them in any positions that we have in schools so that students see community members in the schools and so that community members better understand what it is that we do in schools, To me, that is a way of diversifying a workforce and also validating those whom we serve. So what would be your call to action for listeners either today or tomorrow or next month in terms of how we can better support all of our students, particularly those that are systemically underserved? First of all, I would like to say thank you to our systems leaders because I understand the challenges that I had when I was a systems leader and they were challenges but this is something like we've never seen before. What I would advise them to do is, number one, they are in touch with the people who touch our kids every day. And systems leaders can't do that individually, but they can hold other people accountable, like district superintendents, like school principals, hold them accountable for making sure that they have surveyed their staff 
and that they know what the needs are and can advocate for them up to the systems leaders. Two words, policy and data. What policies help you create the environment to be successful in providing the environments that your teachers and leaders need to grow and learn? And then how do you spend your resources? How do you put your resources behind those policies to ensure that we are equitably distributing the funds and the resources that we have for the students based on their need? Thank you for that. A trend that I'm hearing and what you're sharing is really about gathering the data, listening to the people who are also a part of that data, and then making your decisions as a leader grounded in what the data says needs to happen and allocating the resources behind it. Dr. Lowry, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I know that our listeners will glean so much from the research that you have done as a leader with your work now and just your wealth of knowledge that you brought to us. I really appreciate that. Thank you for joining us on The Revolution Podcast, sponsored by the Education Trust and New Teacher Center. To engage more deeply in our work, please visit our Revolution Campaign website at www.newteachercenter.org.